You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because world destroying just doesn't pay well enough. Hi, <laughs> I'm E.J. Beaton. I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. And this is episode 51, Gender, Equality, and Gender Equality. Welcome, listeners, to our 51st episode of the podcast. We have crossed the line over 50 episodes. Very exciting. And very exciting for us, we have a special guest today. Um, EJ, would you like to introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah. Hi. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me on this wonderful and Hugo-nominated podcast. Um, it's an honor. I'm the author of The Counselor, which is an epic fantasy novel about a scholar who has to choose the next ruler of the realm amidst treachery and conspiracy. And it's set in a gender equal world where women have the same freedoms and social roles as men. It's also a queer norm world, so the main character is bisexual and there are other queer characters. And I describe the book as being a character driven story about power. And at the moment, I'm working on the sequel. So again, thanks for having me. Listeners, you didn't see me just fist pump because I have been hoping (laughs) there was going to be a sequel. Um, There were lots of tantalizing things in the first one that I desperately wanted more of. So I am very excited to hear that. Oh, thank you, Kaz. So we wanted to, with the opportunity that we have um, with The Counselor being such a fantastic exploration of gender and power and all kinds of fun stuff. I guess fun if you're on this podcast or a listener of this podcast. (laughs) Um, You're our people if you are. Um, We wanted to spend some time talking about the concept of gender equality in world building. Um, And the first question that popped into my mind when we're going to start talking about gender equality is, well, we kind of have to figure out hey, gender, that's a thing. And that's a thing that we could spend multiple podcast episodes on. But um, I mean, how how do you begin to untangle that question of how how is it that you define gender in a world or that you as the author define it, how your characters are defining it, how the world is defining it? How does that play into the concept of gender equality? And this can be just such a huge choose versus presume moment because I think especially in like more quote-unquote traditional fantasy there's a lot of presumptions made and then a lot of people defending said presumptions by just going well that's just history and that's really it's authentic yeah that's really not the case remotely true especially it's especially it's a very narrow some small sliver of western civilization presumption rather than the world as a whole so i think it's a really good thing just from the get-go to give strong consideration of the choices you can make of just what even is gender within your cultures let alone if if gender equality exists and what that looks like yeah it's a really interesting way of putting it and i wanted to ask all of you this question as well once I saw it because I know you all deal with gender in your work as well um, and in different settings you know some inspired by real world history 
So is that something that you guys would like to answer first and, and me second, or would you like me to talk about it? She turns the tables! <laughs> oh, ah, God! They've man. never done that on us before. <laughs> uh, oh, well, uh, I didn't define gender in the counselor, which I suppose this question uh, was interesting to me for that reason. It sort of surprised me. Uh, I did try to signal the world's gender equality through language in some ways, as well as through the characters' actions and jobs and so on. Um, but for example, with the language, if the order of words I was using had mirrored the default from patriarchal societies in the real world, then it would seem to undermine the idea that this wasn't a patriarchy. So I thought I'd put the female word first in phrases like women and men or ladies and lords and so on. But I didn't define what it means to be female or male or non-binary, genderqueer and more. Uh, and I was thinking about this, this question, and I'm aware that some readers may want explicit rep of genderqueer and non-binary people on the page. And I think there's a pretty straightforward reason why that isn't there in the counselor, and that's because most of my learning about genderqueer and non-binary identities took place after the manuscript was finished. So I can see how frustrating it probably is for genderqueer and non-binary readers who are sick of being left out of the explicit rep in queer stories, and I do understand that. I think sometimes as writers and as queer people, we're still trying to come to terms with who we are ourselves and learning to be visible. And so we haven't always reached the point where we've represented everyone else as well. But I thought since we're talking about this and like what is gender, I wanted to boost some own voices novels by genderqueer fantasy novels because uh, I do feel like while everyone can do better with rep and I include myself in that, that own voices should really be the heart of all this. So if that's all right with you guys, I would just mention four that I'm interested in. Go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're here for, to soak up all the things that we should. <laughs> to make all of our listeners' TBRs much longer. Okay, great. <laughs> well, I would start <laughs> with uh, Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun, which is a queer reimagining of Chinese history of the Ming Dynasty. Uh, it's beautifully written and features a fantastically ambitious main character. And I get to gloat about it because I've read it and everyone is sort of waiting with bated breath until July. So... It's not long now, so I would say add it to your TBR if you haven't already. Seconded! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've read it too, Rana. I did, yes. It's very good. I'm slow. Well, I... I have it on NetGalley, but I haven't gotten to it yet. I'll have to bump it up. It's good. Oh. It's yeah, so it. many people are probably <laughs> jealous of you hearing that. <laughs> well, I would add also um, Lee Mandela's Summer Sons, which I'm just starting now. Uh, it's a southern gothic fantasy novel with Secrets, Cars, and A Hungry Ghost, which I think is an awesome pitch. Um, but the bit that got me really interested was it's also been described as racing with academic intrigue, which I think sounds absolutely fantastic. Another one which I'm really excited about, so Rivers Solomon, the author of the acclaimed The Deep, has a new novel, Sorrowland, that's just come out, I think, one or two days ago. And according to the author, Sorrowland is about how to enact liberation and live anarchically, even when the poison of colonial and capitalist rule has seeped inside and coloured every one of your social relations, which sounds incredible and very timely, I think, too. And I would add one more, uh, Foz Meadows, whose novel A Tyranny of Queens includes rep, and it's the second book of two. And Foz also has a new book that's just been announced called A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, which is described as a queer fantasy romance. So I hope all of that helps to add to the TBR as well. Yes, mission accomplished. The ever-growing mountain. <laughs> but I think it is so important to keep reading, especially the new stuff that's coming out as it 
you know, we as a community are talking more and more about these questions and beginning to explore them much more deeply, that reading helps to shift those perceptions and help to choose instead of presuming and help to like unpack the like centuries of baggage that we all drag around with us, whether we realize it or not, which can only make us better writers, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, totally. You just kind of throw in there the question of, you know, how how do you define gender? Even if you are taking kind of the presumptions that we stick with in a lot of fantasy or that a lot of, of mainstream culture has kind of stuck with over the years, though those aren't universal either. I think it is still so interesting what you can do in terms of questioning what those roles are. And I think the counselor does this just brilliantly. And I guess I'm curious, EJ, what was building a gender equal world something that you set out to do from the outset of writing that this is this is what I'm planning to do, what I'm going to do, or did it like evolve from the world building process or evolve from what you wanted the story to do? Like how, how did that decision come about? Yeah, it's such a great question. I think definitely what you said about story was really at the heart of it. Um, I was thinking about, you know, the kinds of history I found interesting and the kinds of fantasy stories I found interesting, but then I felt that the roles that I wanted women to have were a bit different. So the world sort of matched that in a sense. Um, I, I really like, Uh, sometimes reading stories about, you know, women overcoming oppression, but I felt that wasn't really what I wanted to write. So therefore, the world had to be a bit different if it was going to set up um, that other kind of story. So um, that it wasn't really a narrative about women overcoming the patriarchy in this particular case, it was more about a world where women and men are already equal. And then, um, you know, women are already at high levels of power and can collaborate and have different kinds of relationships within the story and different roles and positions as well. I think that's a really frequent way that we see gender addressed in fantasy fiction is the idea of smash the patriarchy. And I love it. I'm for it. I love that kind of story. I think there's plenty of room for that. But I also like that we are seeing more and more trends towards gender equal and queer norm worlds in fantasy fiction. I, I in the Oven Cycle, I'm dealing in a very patriarchal world. It doesn't look exactly like, I think, what people expect. Um, you know, divorces are possible, things like that, but there's social repercussions. But it's certainly a patriarchal world. And I did that consciously. I wanted to talk about those things and, and about the pressures put on women and female-bodied people by a society that wants them to be smaller and make themselves less. But... I've gotten really weary of writing that after three books. <laughs> and so my next project is going to be a gender equal and queer norm world where I don't have those boundaries on me. And like, might I return to smash the patriarchy at some point? Probably. But I am really looking forward to exploring something else in the next book. <laughs> well, I think that readers are in the same position, too, that, you know, we want both. We want to read the empowering stories of women who overcome. And we also want to read the world where we don't have to like fight twice as hard and climb twice as high anymore. You know, it's both are really valuable. Yeah, I definitely agree with you both. And I mean, knowing that both Rowena and Cass have worked with sort of historically inspired fantasy too, but it's still really feminist. You know, it's not that feminism has to be one thing or another or feminist fantasy has to be one thing or that we need to necessarily pit um, them against each other. It's, I think, broad enough that it can encompass different ways of doing that. But, you know, it does make sense to me that if you've been working on several books a particular way, maybe then it's like approaching from a different angle the next time starts to feel quite natural. 
Right, which is exactly what I did, because in the Meridian books, it is very much not a gender equal society. But I wanted to not only like make hard choices to lean into what I'm trying to what I was trying to do with that, but also show that as a culture, like not to not have the invisibility that tends to go along with a lot of fantasy, the word those are just presumptions where it's just like oh women are just not in power and that's just how it is or so i want i wanted to actively address these sorts of things so i have things like you know there's a parliament that's elected and women don't have the vote but the fact that women don't have the vote is an issue and people are you know are rioting in the streets about this sort of thing and when i did when i wrote velocity i wanted to very explicitly like let's let's break away from those sorts of presumptions and make radically different choices and the thing you were talking about before about just the way the patriarchal way just that english is usually structured like i found myself so many times realizing oh wait that's that word choice is incredibly sexist or or you know it's like oh i and i had to like interrogate every single word along those lines of where what the deeper implications of using those that sort of language was the the amount of subtle slut shaming in so much so much language about sex was like oh wait i you know those those just are a lot of words that i shouldn't use at all because that has no place in this society that i'm creating that totally makes sense it's it's really interesting sometimes we see these things more when we see the opposite of them too i think like the contrast shucks us into realizing what baggage is behind that language or that particular thing, that particular part of the world. So one thing I think about too, you know, we say gender equal, but what does equality look like? And is it only, I'm sh- obviously I think my answer that, that I give for myself is clear. It's not just one thing, right? I mean, there are many different ways to approach the concept of equality. EJ, how does it, how does equality, what does it look like in the world that you built? I think there's a lot of different facets that I tried to think about, some which were sort of initially there and then others which I developed along the way. One of the things was that uh, gender wasn't a barrier to any kind of work or role. So at whatever level of society, women would be involved in those positions equally. Um, And that was definitely a case of that contrast, making things clearer, where I realized that so much of the high fantasy I'd read, the women were just kind of absent from the background and from sort of groups of people and advisory bodies and that sort of thing. So I tried to have women who were like advisors, captains, um, intellectual figures like scholars or historians, staff, um, nobles, priests, whatever it might be, merchants. So women were just kind of involved in there at all of those levels, like the highest ones and then at all the other levels down the chain. Um, and so, like some times there were particular things that I felt uh, it needed to be shown in contrast. One example being sex workers. Uh, I'd often seen high fantasy or sci-fi as well that you would have uh, kind of a pleasure district which all the sex workers were women and that was never really addressed. So there's just this small moment where a male sex worker comes out of the pleasure district as they're passing through, for example, and that's that's the only sex worker you see there. So I just, I suppose, was trying to go against those assumptions that slant a particular way. But I suppose also, um, you know, thinking about powerful positions, that it's not only the top person, not just the queen or the head of state, but also people who shape the culture. So if you're going to have texts 
um, you know, manuscripts or books that you refer to, which I really like to do, then they shouldn't all be written by men. They should be kind of a mixture of female and male authors that's just naturally worked in. I really like what you said about gender not being a barrier to work and making sure that that shows in the background characters. And I forget who it was. It may have been KB Wagers who um, brought up the tip of rolling a die whenever you have to just give a gender to a background character to make sure that it stays equal. Because there's this like habit that I think many of us get in of making background characters male and this presumption of them being male and like, you know, make sure that that actually shows that, that there's there's equality in those background characters that maybe we only see for a few seconds. But that matters too. I mean, the main characters obviously matter, but the whole makeup of the society that you're building matters. There was a study done. I want to say it was the Gina Davis Institute that, that, that did this study. Cass is showing me that I'm correct about this. <laughs> but <laughs> that with crowd scenes, if the crowd is more than 37% women than audiences tend to think it's overwhelmingly female which the, you know the math does not check out but yet <laughs> but yet that's that's yep. the weird thing we have going on in terms of how representation on the screen has has molded people's thoughts in terms of what normal quote unquote looks like and and that's weird, but that's, you know, that's sort of part of what you have to fight in in your own biases when you're when you're building just who's in the background for stuff. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And definitely the point about media shaping that too, when you have cultural juggernauts, that tends to set up expectations about these things too. One of the things too that I think about when I think about the concept of equality is that there's a difference between... Um, sameness and equality and valuation. And I guess what I mean by that is that if you look at the concept of like in 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 our world, we'll we'll make it homogenous even though it's not, there's a, a tradition of there's men's work and women's work. And to me there's an element of equality that would be like, well just get rid of there's no men's work, there's no women's work, everyone can do the same work. But there's also the element of, well, what if we did have men's work and women's work, but we valued it all the same? Because part of the problem that I think that we have faced is that work traditionally assumed to be women's work is valued much less than men's work is. The contributions that women make to a culture or society are just valued much less. And the work is no less vital or important quite often, but the society values it as less than. And I mean... I think, you know, you look at even salaries today for a lot of roles play out on that, that caregiving roles tend to make less money than, you know, many roles that have traditionally been filled by men. I was just listening the other day to a, uh, another podcast talking about how as technology has improved and made, you know, reduced labor for men and women within the household, that much of the male labor has been eradicated whilst the the women's labor has been like, well, now you're free to do more of the labor within the household. So <laughs> like the example was that like, you know, if, 
you know, in the 1820s, like if you're making a stew, then like the grain that you need, like it's the man's job to, to harvest the grain and grind it into into a flour. But now you can just go to the store and buy flour. So the man doesn't have to do that. But while, you know, the woman's supposed to like beat the eggs and all that, it's like, well, we've now invented the egg beater. So it's easier. So now we're going to make angel food cake be a big thing because it's going to be easier to make. And it'll take you just as long before because now you have to make a more complicated thing to keep up with the times and it was it was a fascinating look at how those advances have removed the work for 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 a lot of men without actually changing how much labor most women are doing it really shows that you can shift the technology but not shift the underlying sexism which then just generates more and more work yeah I think that this also partially explains all those jello salads. I was just thinking that. <laughs> those mid-century jello salads. <laughs> like, you know, we have created all of these conveniences in the kitchen. You, you know, don't have to spend all this time here anymore, but you should to create salmon this. asparagus jello mold. <laughs> like... Jello salad. <laughs> with things suspended in it. See, I always thought those were this passive aggressive game of like, oh, you want me to make something complicated. <laughs> Here. could be could be and, and it just kept escal- <laughs> like if you look at those recipes from the 70s it's, it's like this escalation of like i'm going to make the most horrible thing and you're all going to act like it's wonderful <laughs> i'm i'm gonna have to repost my my grandma ruby's salad luncheon <laughs> recipes again aren't i oh those were those, <laughs> those were, were horrifying they were delightfully horrible <laughs> Okay, but not to distract from the horrifying salad imagery, but um, (laughs) (laughs) I just think that was a fantastic point about evaluation, Rona, because I guess it comes back to that idea of different stories and different feminist stories where in my case, like I'm definitely writing about similarity, but I think I would be really interested to see what you've described there, Um, you know, a world where there was women's work and men's work, but it's valued the same or that's done differently somehow because that really has the potential to speak to those real world issues you know the kind that Marshall was talking about where it it hasn't really reached the state of equality yet but I was also thinking about um you know if things are gender equal if women and men um, are doing all the same kinds of work across the board then is there another thing that's structuring value and also creating discrimination so at the world in the counselor is very hierarchical and bound up with nobility as well as financial inequality and I was interested in the Tudor theory of divine right of kings as well as the medieval belief in the great chain of being both of which I guess sort of posit a structure where everyone stays in their social role and there's a permanent inequality in the world so in a way it's taking up sort of the same issue of some people's work is valued and some people's work is not valued but it's not along gendered lines so I was thinking about the question of can you still talk about differently valued work and inequality and people at the bottom doing all the work without that being a gendered thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in some ways shifting like the focus by upending the assumptions about gender, like you can shine a light more clearly on the elements that you want to talk about or explore more um, because you can't explain it away with gender and you can't, you know, kind of divert the focus onto that it's like oh no this is really what we're talking about now mm-hmm. yeah definitely and there can be a difference too in between what the society purports to value and what it actually does thinking about medieval structures the the big concept was the idea of the three estates those who work those who pray and those who fight and in theory 
they're all equal in God's eyes, and they're all valuable and all necessary to society. But the reason we get things like the French Revolution is because eventually the people who are those who work say, hang on a minute. <laughs> if we're all equal, how come y'all seem to have much cushier lives than the rest of us? Um, and so what a society claims it values isn't always reflected in the reality. And I think we live in a society like that, where it's like, oh, yes, we women folk have the vote now. Everything's perfectly equal. And it's like, mm, my paycheck says otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> And again, the whole, you know, what even in two income households, that women still do the majority of the housework, right? So even though we have this kind of like, you can stamp the cookie cutter down and look, it is an equal household of two people who work and bring home, even if they bring home equal income. Oh, wait, behind the scenes, women are still putting in more labor hours in the house. So... Again, we're purporting one thing while actually playing out another. I think that speaks, too, to the fact that it's it's not all like your options are total oppression or total equality. Societies live on a spectrum. They are often in transition. Marshall, I feel like the Meridane series is a society in transition. Um, and the one I'm working on is sort of like I, I'm, I'm still having, figure, having trouble figuring out exactly where to posit it on that scale. But I think sometimes that can be hard to communicate to readers because some of them will hear fantasy world and immediately assume it's the oppression side of things. If it's, right. if it's blurrier, you have to teach them that. I'd be interested in hearing if any of you guys had experienced this and, and maybe Marshall with writing A Queer Gnome World and Cass with the new project that you were talking about, but whether you've also found that trying to imagine a world where things are very different actually can sort of empower you in the way that you act in the real world too in that sense of thinking about a totally different default can have some flow on impacts on the way you then apply that to your life or the way you might question the default more in our real world that was something that I found as, as sort of an unexpected thing as I was working on my book and I wondered if you'd found a similar thing or not to an extent I mean I certainly in writing this book but also in like the thought process that led up to it I did a lot of like looking around of like why why exactly do we have why why exactly have we decided that this is the one way that that like marriages work or th something like that like what's where did that come from and so I mean my own home life like I'm the one who does most of the householdy things in this household so we're 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 away from what's the average norm in here but that's also and I think that's part of why I didn't have a lot of trouble questioning that sort of thing. I'm I'm not as affected by toxic masculinity as most, but I'm st I still live in this culture, and <laughs> and you know we're all soaking in it. So therefore, <laughs> but it, it it did it did create processes of me looking more and more at like oh this is this is should be or could be perfectly normal if if we decided to let it be, but. Some people just don't want to just don't want to let it be. Yeah, I think for me, it's sort of coming along with my ongoing education about gender issues. And I when I was very young, was was very into the gender binary in a way that I think a lot of reactionary young women tend to be like it's all about the feminine energy and, and things like that. And there are branches of paganism that lead you to that a lot. But I grew up and I met more people 
and they didn't all fit within that binary. <laughs> and it was like, oh, well, my friends don't reflect this idea I've been given. And over years, I, I have learned more things and more ways of thinking about gender. And that brings me around, I think, to the things I'm going to explore in this new project about what it means and, and when it means what things and how you can still have ideas of gender. You can have ideas of, you can have ideas of gender and it, and it can mean something to be a man or a woman or another gender and still have those things be equal. Um, you don't have to erase the concept of gender to have gender equality, even though what that gender means may be different for each individual person. What it means to me to be a woman, and I'm a, I'm a cis female woman, is not what it means to every other cis female woman even, let alone people who are not cisgendered women. That's been, been part of my ongoing awareness and education. And so I don't think it's because I'm writing this book, but it's happening alongside of it and influencing the writing of the book. That may have been very twisty, but... <laughs> No, it was Tristy, but I got it. (laughs) Well, because that's some of the only things that I've been thinking that, you know, I'm, you know, white, cisgendered, male, you know, I think every single privilege box that exists. Playing the game on easy mode, Marshall. I really am. (laughs) Which, but, you know, here I am, you know, honing in on 50. And I often think to myself that I, you know, I see like those sort of like calcified older white men who are, you know, who back in the day were, you know, being, you know, progressive fighters, but, you know, they were progressive fighters for what was progressive in, you know, 1977. And that's where their progression ended. And I don't, I constantly want to challenge myself to not get locked into well, this is how things are supposed to be because and and thus push constantly push myself out of my comfort zone to open up my eyes more and more. That's that's that is my own constant journey. I think it's it's interesting too that when you push to write something different or to explore um a second world or a historically inspired world or whatever you're exploring and writing, it's incredible how many ways you discover to be unequal in terms of gender. And it kind of like got me thinking about, you know, there are many ways to represent gender equality. And there are some definite ways probably not to represent gender equality. And I wonder if we have any of those that that pop to mind as like, pitfalls to avoid in terms of of going down the road of gender equality i was thinking about this because someone raised a question along these lines in my reddit ama recently where um a reddit user asked about um matriarchal fantasy and said that they'd seen some discussions where people were saying that it necessarily had to be a case of women are in charge but now it's sexist towards men in sort of a a role reversal scenario um and my answer was that I, I don't think that matriarchal fantasy needs to be limited to things will be sexist no matter who's in charge. Um, like that's one take you could have, but there are plenty of others. Um, you could explore how characters might navigate a society like that, which has both positives and negatives to it, or one that has a lot of positives to it. And then I think also it's possible to approach a matriarchal fantasy world without it needing to be a moral story about matriarchy at all. So I guess to link that back to the question of, you know, gender equality in terms of creating gender equal worlds, 
I think logic would suggest that the inequality of patriarchy doesn't get fixed by setting up a new kind of sexist inequality. And, and to argue that a matriarchal or gender equal society must be discriminatory is a kind of convenient way of assuaging guilt about real world sexism. The excuse being, well, if women were in charge or shared power, then it'd be just as bad. So I, th I think it's an attempt to limit the kinds of narratives we can explore. But I'd like to think that um, fiction about equality can be more about opening doors in that sense. I'm reminded of that first season Next Generation episode where first they're like they go they they go to this planet where they're like oh wow women are in charge in this planet how weird and wacky is that but then also they like for all the the you know the people from this planet they cast actresses who are all like you know six foot very Amazonian very yeah and all the, all the male characters are like. Five two and scrawny guys, so that like, so they give you this very visual. To, but then, of course, the episode goes into like, you know, that they have to like rescue this you know human pilot who crashed there. But his mere presence of just being a real man for once, like, has totally thrown the world into a complete tizzy. Which I think, I mean, it's a terrible, terrible, terrible episode, but it's fascinating along those lines because, it, like, it is almost like the message of like these the women on this on this world who were in charge were like, finally a real man. <laughs> But there is, there it's is that so sense bad. with some but... people, I think that, um, you know, female power kind of generates a male crisis. And I think that's a strange idea. And, and also sometimes it can be this sense that, well, okay, women are going to be in power, but now men have to prove that they are still extremely tough. But I would like to think that if we're expanding what women can do, then we can also expand the range of things that men can do and be as well, whether that's, you know, um, enjoying clothes or perfumes or jewelry or these kinds of things. And that that doesn't somehow invalidate anything. Especially because historically that has been a thing. I've just, I've got <laughs> yeah. the song, The Creation of Men from the Scarlet Pimpernel in my head right now, which is, if you don't know that musical, it is a song about being a fop in the late 18th century and how fantastic it is that men, as the vibrant members of the species, like birds with their plumage, get to wear these spangles and these feathers and these bright colors. And, and like the idea that that is feminine rather than masculine is fairly new in, in Western culture, at least. Um, and so, yeah, I, I would love to play with things like that. The, the project I'm working on is Elizabethan inspired. And so I'm playing with that aesthetic and boy, howdy, can you go wild with <laughs> people loving fabrics and perfumes and all sorts of things and i want to show that all genders can enjoy that or can eschew it can be like mm, no, that's not my style um depending on their personal preferences not some externally imposed gender mandate that sounds great i want everyone to go back to the 18th century ideal of just where where all the things all the color all the flounces all the ridiculous patterns and stripes and whatever just do it pretend the 19th century never happened i try to all the time they ruined everything <laughs> try to forget it that's gonna be another drinking so game thing cast cracks we... on the victorians that's <laughs> yeah well sorry sorry not sorry <laughs> so if if we're going to move forward with world building, a gender equal world, 
I mean, there are a lot of elements that are going to have to get put under the microscope and tweaked and changed. And some of them get like turned inside out and shaken out and put back together again. So I guess I'm curious, EJ, when you were kind of recrafting a world, what were some of the elements that you had the most fun playing with gender equality within, whether it's, you know, like education or work or home life or family or whatever? Gosh, uh, can I say all of those things? Yes, <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think everything about it was really uh, enjoyable and, and interesting. Um, definitely with, with education, I think if you're educating people equally regardless of gender, then that should show in the jobs available and the intellectual life of the world. So I was enjoying trying to work with that. And home life, I suppose, uh, it's not something I focused on a lot because the main character is an orphan, but it is kind of in the background, but I was certainly thinking about, um, you know, the, the way people are raised and what values they have in the context of the Renaissance idea of the individual who has the power to shape their destiny and, and how that was kind of breaking away from the medieval period a bit. So I was thinking of that, but as something that's gender equal, not just the idea that noblemen were being raised with this idea of trying to seize a great destiny, but that noble women could be too. But then you also had this class barrier to that as well uh one of the things i really enjoyed was um fighting and the way that different characters could fight and how that wasn't necessarily i suppose this comes back a bit to what we were talking about with you know physical strength and what men and women can be versus kind of delicacy and other things but i wanted to have women who are quite physically powerful just be there and also some who weren't um and they could be equally effective and then the same with the men so you could have male fighters who was quite strong and then others who are quite agile or you know there's one person who um, when character Luca who has the motto strength without swords and who typically fights in a strategic way that minimizes his physical output so I guess thinking about those things as being gender equal to that wasn't the case that one gender fights a particular way and then the other gender fights a different way but within that um, people could have whatever sort of style that they liked that more suits their personality and values and interest. Yeah, I think that martial culture is a really interesting one to kind of like look at through the lens of choose don't presume when it comes to gender equality because you you will always you will always have the person we won't assume this person's gender making the objection that well of course men are going to make better soldiers because they are just on average bigger. And like there are a so many ways to play with that. Um, in terms of there are different things that a martial culture can value. They can value agility. They could value speed. And the fact that technology kind of like blows a lot of those things out of the water anyway. So if you're looking at a world that is no longer purely hand-to-hand fighting, like you can play with a lot of things. A musket, really, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You can fire it just as effectively or ineffectively as the case may be you know, it it doesn't so much matter. So, you know, you can build a martial culture that's aware of the differences in averages between men and women, but still has equality within it. I always like to think in terms of like when you have an ensemble cast and they're in a situation where a fight breaks out, like who is going to be in a position to fight well and who's not? And too often in popular culture mass culture we have this thing where it's like all the men are able to fight very ably and you know handle themselves whereas the women not so much and that's like i feel like you should have 
several of your male characters as well as several female characters should be in a position of like if a fight breaks out they're gonna die unless somebody intervenes <laughs> but but also some of them should be able to handle themselves ably and you know Again, we're gonna we're gonna knock on Star Trek Next Generation, but there's there's the <laughs> We knock because we love. We knock because we love. There's the episode where Q sends them into Robin Hood. Yes for reasons. Because Q. Because <laughs> Q. At one point a fight breaks out and Picard and Riker and Worf and Data and Jordy are all like they have swords and they're fighting and it's you know very very swashbuckly and it's great and Troy and Crusher like sneak up behind people and hit them over the head with pots and it's <laughs> but like it's so blatant that it's like but 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 didn't you see what how blatant you're making it's like this? you two had the same <laughs> and, Starfleet basic combat training with the two-handed punch thing that they do apparently as everybody else <laughs> but like somebody there was like let's let's make that just a, okay crusher will hit him let's have troy also just hit somebody overhead with a pot like the, the fact and that honestly if you don't know what you're doing with the sword the pot's probably more effective anyway they should all be hitting people over the head with pots <laughs> i mean yeah like i totally believe Worf knows how to use a broadsword but Riker, really i'm not sure about that Jordy? Yeah, Jordy? No. No. Jordy. I mean, Data's sure. He's fully functional, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) He just accesses that program. I like that comment (laughs) comment about the ensemble cast, too, because I I really like the idea of having just a range of different personalities involved, and I think that can really show in the way that people fight, too. And also, I guess, thinking about their priorities. You know, if it's someone who's really intellectual and who's spent a lot of time studying, then they're not going to have devoted equal time to training usually, or they might, you know, have a bit of training, but it's going to be different to someone who spent a lot of time doing martial training. So I think that can show as well. One spot too that I think um, might slip under the radar and might not even be important to a book, depending on on what you're writing. But I think about how gendered religion typically is mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, not, not only who has identified as a deity, is the deity male or female? Do you have both male and female? Is there importance to that delineation but also like the practitioners of religion are you know often in in our historical religions male practitioners have been more highly valued or accepted um whereas female practitioners of religion are often relegated to like second place or or they're just burned as witches depending pick your poison on that i guess (laughs) which direction you want to take exploring that one but yeah i think that religion is a place that's often very gendered and often very unequally gendered yeah i definitely agree with that and i think if you are then creating a gender equal world then you have to think about that as well especially if it is a world where religion is important because often that's a source of value so you know if that source of value still appears to be patriarchal then it's it doesn't really fit believably into the world in the same way so I was trying to um, create female deities and also to have people of any gender as priests and so on. But I think it is a really good point of consideration also with rituals and those kinds of things um, and how that would look different as well. I have to remind myself frequently in the Avon cycle that most priesthoods and, and most religious um, organizations in Rome weren't specifically gendered. There were some that were, and there were some rituals that could only be one gender or the other but many of them were not and you didn't always associate with a deity of your own 
gender. And I find myself like instinctively doing that just because of the weight of the patriarchy on my own brain. And I have to be like, no, wait, I can have a woman be dedicated to a male god or vice versa. That's allowed in most cases. But I have to consciously think of it and consciously do it. Well, and I think that that raises kind of another question or segues into another question, which is, you know, that there, for example, are those gods in um, in the ancient Roman world that were or had mystery religions or sects that were male only or female only, um, which is in a gender equal world, do you still have spaces that are for one gender or another or exclusionary in some way? Like, do you can you build that in or does that get washed out with with the other work that you're doing? I think that's such an interesting question. I kind of love that question. I don't have women only or men only spaces in my novel, but I'd be really interested to see how it was handled by someone including it. I suppose there's never really a no when it comes to this stuff. It's more a question of, (laughs) well, how would it function without patriarchy really? You know, how would you make that work? Um, And I was thinking also about how it'd be interesting to see a gender separated space if it wasn't functioning as say a protective space for women or, you know, a place of privilege for men like a boys club, but as something else, what would that something else look like? So it's not something I've addressed, but I'd really love to see that. I think you you absolutely could do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there are a lot of the reasons that we have for creating spaces for one gender or another is about either excluding one group from power or privilege or about protecting a group from the undue effects of the other group, perhaps we could say. But if you don't have other of those things to worry about, you know, there may still be valid reasons to have have spaces that are insular for one reason or another. To an extent, that ties to the thing we were talking about a couple episodes ago of like, do different spaces have different rules and are part of the rules part of why you split up, you would create specifically gendered spaces because of those rules. I'm thinking about how, like in Germany, a lot of the like changing rooms for pools and all that in the pool and pools and saunas themselves don't end up being gender separated spaces. And everyone, you know, is naked in there because that's just the, the cultural rules for the pools and saunas and such. Whereas here, we would find that horrifying as, as a thing to do people like no, you, you have to you know have separate changing rooms and where else think, think of, of the, the children, children marshall think and of the children we have, a, we have a separate you know <laughs> mothers and children changing room that's separate from the other two altogether, and which is that's that's a whole set of luggage to unpack right there in spaces like that the rules for mothers with sons is radically different than single fathers with daughters my my husband has brought up before just like the awkwardness of like if i'm out with the girls what bathroom do i where do we we go to starbucks because they have a single seater and i don't have to answer this question because this world is not set up for (laughs) you know a man taking parental roles by himself in the same way that that we understand it if a woman does yeah i i was thinking specifically at the YMCA that I used to go to in the before times that there was, you know, there's the men's room, there's the women's dressing room. And then there is a third one that is women with children. And, but if you were like a single dad or a dad who took 
his daughter to the pool, you your only option would be to take your daughter into the men's dressing room with you and the consequences of that choice <laughs> that you would have to accept. <laughs> but because there was no there was no, oh, you're a father who has your children with you. No, no, that there's no space for for you for that. That's specially designated for you for that. It's like how only recently had they started putting those diaper decks yeah. in men's rooms too. Yes. <laughs> like that was not a thing until recently. They were only in the women's room. Yes. And yes, that that was an issue a couple of times in the early 2000s for me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I think something else that it's important to think about when we're thinking about gender equal worlds as writers, because it is all about words and language, is titles and honorifics and mm -hmm. even pronouns. What do you use? How do you use them? And how do you then teach the reader what to expect from the terms that you're using? I love prince because enough people have sort of inculcated the idea that prince can be a gender neutral term, but we we have problems when it comes to like lords and ladies. What do you do? How do you how do you open that up and, and take it apart and, and teach your reader that there's something else than what they may be assuming there? I mean, how many people lost their mind with ancillary justice because it used she as the as the default pronoun throughout the book, and people just could not handle and lost their damn mind over over this really simple concept? Like, I feel like one thing that just conveys so much in such a simple word is the fact that um, if a king is married, he has a queen. If a queen is the reigning monarch and she is married. She has a prince consort. That tells you so much about what we assume about the roles that men and women take and what the importance, you know, just in society in general is. It's one of those things that I, I wonder moving forward, or, or is, is the monarchy, if it continues, <laughs> going, to, going to keep that? Or are we going to at some point consider that that's, it's weird. I don't know. And a deck of cards is hierarchical. And and we just sort of know that as a given. And that's crazy if you actually think about it. <laughs> I liked the point about Prince, whether or not it's a gender neutral term, because that was something that, you know, came up a fair bit in the Renaissance as well. Where, and, and even still you hear those references where people are talking about a ruler. They would say a prince. That's why Machiavelli's The Prince was called that. And there was a recent history about Queen Elizabeth published called Elizabeth the Renaissance Prince. So it was still a thing that was used. But... I felt more comfortable using um, ladies and lords, prince and princess, but, um, you know, making sure that the female term came first. But then when I was talking about, like, the common people, the masses, then there's just one title, senor, in the book for anyone who's not aristocracy, which is meant to show that, you know, even if things are gender equal, and there's not that issue that Rowena was talking about with, you know, a different term like consort in one particular situation, the terms are always equal. But if you're not of the nobility, then there's still the sense that you're one big mass that doesn't really have that chance at a kind of a unique status um even if you are someone who is wealthier within that mass like a merchant or a craftsperson you're still just senior you're not a lady or a lord so those markers are kind of gender equal but then they're also a form of discrimination as well something i've been wrangling with with the new project is finding a honorific title for women and non-binary people that isn't a derivation of mr or master because Mrs., Miss, those are all diminutive forms of the masculine term. And I, 
I want to have these different terms for people, but I don't want them to descend from each other in that way. So I have to figure out, like, I'm probably going to end up just making up a whole new term. But once again, then I have to teach the reader what that means. And that it's not lesser than the other term. And then it's like, okay, well, do I change master or mister, whichever one I decide on? Do I change that too? Just to sort of break them of that expectation? And then, then we get into the on-ramp question of how much teaching do I want to have to do <laughs> at the beginning of the novel? It really is a struggle. Like, it really makes sense what you're saying. Because I was finding a similar thing where if you're you know, getting rid of marital titles because you don't want them to be gendered, then you do need another word, which is why I, I chose that word. But I think it is something that naturally comes up if you have a gender equal word. It's not going to make sense to have Mrs. And, and Ms. and Miss for women and then just Mr. for men or whatever the equivalent may be. What does marriage as a cultural institution even mean in a gender equal world? Is marriage necessarily between two people of different genders? Is it necessarily between two people? Does it change your identity in the way yeah. that our society assumes it does, at least for women, that your title and your name often change? There's still so much resistance to women keeping their own names uh, after marriage. They do polls on this all the time. And even women react poorly to the idea of holding on to their own names sometimes. Um, so does marriage change you i would i can't think of a novel i would love to see something where it does but it does it for both partners whatever gender they are like everyone gets a new honorific and a new name perhaps a, a united family name that they take together that'd be that'd be fun to play with that would be and i think too like all the things that get tied up with marriage um like property and finances like in a gender equal world a lot of the things that historically have been dragged into the question of marriage like well if women can own property equally that's not a question anymore if finances are treated equally like that's not you know you don't have to basically like sign over everything (laughs) that you may have owned in order to get married which historically was frequently a thing so yeah on both ends of what does marriage do how does it function like what does it look like yeah, I definitely wanted there to be same-sex marriages because it is a queer norm world. But I was thinking in terms of the meaning of marriage, how, you know, being inspired by some parts of Renaissance history that you can't really look at that history without coming into the the fact that marriage was such a political bargaining chip and it was always strategic. Um, you know, if, if a, a leader didn't make their marriage strategically, then that in itself was a choice. So I was thinking about that, but wanting to take the gendered aspect out of it, you know, so... Um, if the queen had or had not married would be a matter of a foreign alliance and so on for other leaders as well. Yeah, I think that you end up with some interesting room for marriage, um, meaning other things or meaning things for the, for your plot or for your story um, in really interesting ways. Like you can emphasize the political or you could emphasize the power or you could emphasize the concept of property. Like think was it our, our our 13 families in our world that marriage is just a business deal basically <laughs> when we had kind of built that in um but yeah I think that you know removing the question of, of inequality from gender opens up a lot of play in terms of not only marriage but what do romantic relationships look like right and are these two things that are necessarily connected like I don't go too much into details of what marriage and i don't even use the word marriage in velocity revolution at all but i don't go into i did a lot of world building work there that 
doesn't explicitly show up on the page in terms of no <laughs> how many spreadsheets marshall there's, there's, there's some spreadsheets but like one of the things is that you know what's the equivalent of marriage in the culture is mostly just a like legal acknowledgement of of you know we are having a child together and so therefore we both have acknowledged that we have responsibilities to being the parent of this child and thus we have to do that together and that's pretty much and then it's like and we're once you reach the point where you're like and we're tired of being together as a romantic couple that's fine you just you know then separate that particular legal binding which is mostly about finances rather than because you're expected to provide for the child that you have taken responsibility for but beyond that there's no real like there's certainly no sense of like you have romantic obligation towards this person or anything beyond that but i love the question of considering you know what what about offspring (laughs) because you know i mean there are certain biological realities that cis women do have which include pregnancy and breastfeeding and in a lot of fantasy worlds like we don't have many of the modern or futuristic get arounds for those but that doesn't mean that the society cannot still equally you know support both both parents or support women who are parenting in ways that promote equality right i mean just because you have a a particular you know biological like oh hey yep you're the one who's going to carry it for nine months and then it's going to need nourishment so that doesn't necessarily have to play out in the ways that historically it has um in much of the world it was in a memory called empire that i i just recently read that one of the cultures because everyone needs to be physically productive they're, they're on a space station and um everyone has work to do and so when they reproduce it's all done external of anyone's actual body um and and the idea of actually like carrying a child in the womb is very foreign to the the womb bearers of that culture because they're like why would you waste that time you, you'd be useless for months why would you do that we, we can't waste your potential like that for months we, you have stuff to do right and I thought that was just a really neat way of sort of showing how you can reconceptualize those things if you have the tech or perhaps the magic to do so. I think we tend to think of removing biology from the gender equation as a futuristic thing, but there's certainly no reason you couldn't use magic to the same purposes if you were so inclined. I, I was thinking of the show Farscape where the Peacekeepers is this very, very soldiery culture so when Aaron soon gets pregnant, their biology is such that like you can just like be pregnant, but just put it on pause for years <laughs> because well, it's like but stays like in that would be convenient. <laughs> so then, <laughs> and then when you unpause it, it un you can unpause it and have it go super super fast. So you go from so then those last you know. It's it's a matter of a few days rather than than several months, which then in like the final you know <laughs> thing of that like she's literally goes you know in the middle of a, of a firefight goes to like you know 
being kind of pregnant to very pregnant to giving birth like during a gun battle. He's <laughs> like, you should stop shooting. Shooting makes me feel better. <laughs> it's delightful. So you should put it, you should definitely put in for a sick day before that happens. Like I'm going to be out. Well, I think it's interesting too, that we often focus on the element of pregnancy, but I mean, historically not being able to nourish your child in any way, except for, breastfeeding is is was kind of a reality and i think again you're writing fantasy we can make up ways around this magic potion formula maybe the magic potion formula maybe there are plants that can be developed into some kind of you know proto soy formula or i keep saying dragon nursemaids all right like i just want dragon nursemaids you know you have some alchemy with i haven't thought this through and then the dads can breastfeed too like why not (laughs) yeah (laughs) You know, why not? And I just, there are many ways our imaginations can take us that can, in fact, enrich the worlds that we're creating rather than, than just fall into a status quo. Dragon nest made sounds like such a fantastic idea, but then what about the fire hazard? I mean, isn't there a pretty good chance well, have, that you'll set to... the baby on fire? <laughs> Those would be very, very well-trained dragons. I was going to ask Rowena, is this why you keep raising chickens? Are you hoping one of them's going to turn into a dragon? Is that it? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. One of my friends just told me and she promised to send me the story and she hasn't yet, but she had come across a a short story about a a broody chicken that hatched a dragon and I I couldn't find the title and I need to because that just delights me. (laughs) Maybe it'll happen to you. Maybe, you know, I'm just going to go out there one day and some broody chicken's going to have a little dragon baby. Someday, living the dream. So I feel like we're coming toward the end of our time, EJ, but I want to make sure there is, if there are any other topics that you wanted to cover before we get into our farewells. As we kind of only very briefly touched on like romance, sex, etc. Though I don't know if that was something, because I, I know that those are, you know, plots in your in your book, EJ. I didn't know if that was something that you wanted to talk about more or not. It's totally up to you. Um, I'm fine too if you'd like to as well. I mean, I also don't want to run you too far over time, so I guess uh, whatever you feel is best to, to do. Or to it's not, not like we have to much. fit inside a time slot or anything like that. This is true. We don't have advertisers or something. <laughs> so I am curious, EJ, because I know that it is a topic um, in your book. How how does gender equality affect romance and and sex and all of that good stuff in your world anyway? Yeah, it's a topic I find really interesting because I think feminism is a part of how we write about sex and sexuality or can be. And there are different feminist approaches to writing about that. So in stories set in the real world, it could be something like resisting the Madonna whore binary or showing the dangers of rape culture or maybe creating dialogue about gender dynamics. But I think when you're writing a story set in a gender equal world, there are some new opportunities that you have. So I tried to consider how some aspects of female sexuality and desire that are underrepresented or maybe treated as unusual could be just presented as totally normal or unremarkable in the world. One of the questions when I was writing Velocity that I was asked myself is what does sexy look like in the world? Especially in a world where, you know, like everyone, well, not everyone, everyone, but that the cultural norm is pansexuality. So what does what do things like advertisements look like what who is the sexy person who starts the race what are they 
what do they look like? That was definitely the, the question I kept presenting myself of like, how do I express this in a way that's not making the presumption of what everyone finds sexy? Because it's going to be different in the culture. I loved that you decoupled it from youth in interesting ways. That you had older characters who were like, frankly, still very sexual and presented as very desirable by other characters. Because I think that's something else that weaves into all of it. And and that certainly yeah. has a gendered component in that often uh, women are under more pressure to keep looking youthful than men. Not always entirely. Men still have some of that. But, you know, you can have the silver fox in, in our, our world. And it's not it's not the same in that sort of way. So I, I liked that you played with that. That was a nice touch. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> because it was very much a thing that I, I consciously made, did a lot of thinking about of how I was going to show all these things in the world and what that, how everyone else would react to them in ways that made sense. And I just wanted everyone to be sexy. I wanted everyone to be sexy. That's That was the goal. Equality and sexiness. I was thinking about sort of gender dynamics as well and, and how that would look different, like the active-passive dynamic in courtship and then sort of um, things like dominant-submission dynamic, would that look different? And also just generally the idea of female gaze as opposed to male gaze too. So I suppose those were three things that I had in mind as well. Oh, wow. That just made me think about what does kink actually look like in, in, the, wor in the world like that because... Cause that, that's that that's an area I did not go to in to with, with velocity at all. I mean, honestly, it's not something that I I would say I dealt with a lot. So I was a bit surprised that it's kind of turned out to be a discussion point for my book because, I mean, in my opinion, it's just one part of a much larger story. But I think it's interesting because when you do see popular representations of relationships with a consensual power dynamic, they tend to be male dominant. So Fifty Shades of Grey being an obvious example. And then one of those cultural juggernauts, like we were talking about before, how media can reinforce expectations. So I think that to some extent reinforced that expectation. And then on the other hand, when you have dominant women who appear in popular culture, they're often presented as these violent femme fatales who commit murder. So I can think of two famous examples from films that really struck me about this. One is um, in the film Mr. and Mrs. Smith, where the main character Jane takes on the role of a dominatrix and then she kills a man during that scene. And then another one, and I think this is the one that, that really stands out to me, is the James Bond film Goldeneye, where you have this character, Xenia, <laughs> who is a dominatrix who dominates men and then kills them during sex scenes. But then, you know, I was thinking about this and how the irony here is that in real life, it's women who are overwhelmingly statistically at risk of sexual violence. So there's this specter of, like, the violent dominant woman in popular culture, but in real life, it's more likely that the violence is directed against women. So, but I, I guess coming back to the story, I wanted to write about consensual power dynamics, not rape or sexual violence. And female dominant characters are fairly rare. So I was interested in writing about this in a world where it would just be unremarkable and not an issue. Because I think in our real world, female desires are still really politicized and weaponized against women. So I was like trying to imagine a world where that wasn't really an issue. And I think it made sense to ground that in consent as well. But I was also conscious of this um, kind of association with epic fantasy and rape scenes and maybe more in grimdark fantasy as well. Um, and I think perhaps also the depiction of sexual violence on Game of Thrones has something to do with that in terms of its 
popular culture age too. Something I liked in The Counselor is that that playing with the dynamic and the idea that the sexual role you take in something like that isn't necessarily the same as your role in society. I think often fiction is always like, ah, yes, the dominant male in life is also the dominant male in bed. And it's like, but if it's a game, you know, <laughs> if it's something you're playing with, if it's role playing in a way, that doesn't have to be the case. And the woman who is not as assertive in life might be more assertive in the bed. Like there's so many different ways that you can play with that, especially when you start factoring kink into the equation. And I will say that was one of the things I felt very teased by. <laughs> And I'm hoping for more of in the sequel. I am on that train. <laughs> so if there are other readers who are yeah, there, the you, I'm with them. I love the way you describe that, though, because, you, yeah, I was definitely thinking about the two in terms of, like, what people expect that it's going to match how people are on the outside isn't necessarily the case or in terms of how much power they have or that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, I've, de I've definitely had some interesting reader reactions. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> But no, I, I did have some comments along the lines of what you said, Cass, as well, that, that, that people want to morph it. But I'm, I'm working on the sequel at the moment and, and sort of wrangling with this a little bit too. You should, of course, write the story you want to write. That is not meant to, you know... <laughs> Steer you I in just any really, particular direction. It sort of surprised me because, like, usually when that aspect is in a book too, that becomes, like, a marketing focus. Like, you think about the Kushiel series, right? So it surprised me that that, that wasn't something it was sold to me as but it was still a component of the world because that is a dynamic people have it doesn't have to be the story it can just be an element that is there and i, I think that about sex in general in in fantasy novels people will often treat it as though it's extraneous and it's like but it's a thing that people do like eating and traveling and other things that we don't think to complain about so I, I appreciated that it was, and it was such yeah. a part of. It was such a part of political intrigue too. I guess that's something I was thinking about. You know, if if you can't trust people, or if you're in a situation where there is a lot of intrigue, then the decisions you make personally are part of that. I read this fantastic book, and I'm trying to recall the exact title. I think it's called Machiavelli and Love. It's something like Machiavelli, Love, and Sex, and they're they're sort of talking about how people could um, play around with those things in political life of the Renaissance, which I thought was really interesting too, that, yeah, as you say, it is a part of life and something that can also come into the plot too. There was one of those terrible Twitter things that went viral not too long ago of like, there never needs to actually be sex scenes in books. And we were like, what? No, no, wrong, no. <laughs> you know what? There, there don't need to be dinner party scenes. Right. You don't have to have traveling scenes. But you know what? <laughs> all part of life. These are choices that we make. Give us all of it. <laughs> and on that, um, we are, are probably at our hour. And we certainly don't want to leave without EJ giving us a little souvenir, um, a bit of trivia for our little in-podcast world that we're slowly building and fleshing out. Yeah, I had a question about this. Were you wanting something from the real world or from my book's world? Because I wasn't quite sure. From your imagination, whatever you would like to bequeath upon us. I think most people have given us something. They've probably given us something they couldn't fit into <laughs> work of their own at this point and just wanted to lob it at us. Well, can I can I lob something at you that is in the book? Absolutely. Yes. Okay, well, in, in that case, I would give you a star fruit, which is a, a fruit in the book that's prickly on the outside and you have to peel back the hard skin to get to the soft fruit inside. Could it be a metaphor? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I, mm, I love metaphorical fruit. So we've been, been given metaphorical fruit. Love it. 
I love it. Thank you. And thank you for joining us. Um, I think this has been a fantastic conversation. Definitely, listeners, get your hands on a copy of The Counselor. Um, It is a wonderful read. You will not regret it. And certainly uh, you want to read it before that sequel with all those scenes that Cass wants to read uh, come out. So, (laughs) If not, there's always fanfic. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Are you already writing some, Cass? Maybe. Yeah, thank you again for having me. And just really enjoyed talking about all of these things and and thinking about how they're handled differently in, in relation to your work as well and to other ways of doing things has been so fascinating. Hi, you. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. Our next episode will go up on June 9th, where we're doing another round of listener questions and diving deep into the rabbit holes that takes us. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come and chat with us and other fans of the podcast. We'd love for you to share the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.